I'm Nate Imig, and this is Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. On this episode... Chances are you fall into one of two camps when you hear that sound. Either you have no idea what we're talking about and what that's from, or more than likely, those words and that music are instantly recognizable. Almost like this sound is to football fans. Now, at this point in the race, these sounds are from RuPaul's Drag Race, a drag reality competition on VH1 that has sparked a global fandom. Drag is in right now. And forget sports. For us, this is our competition. Drag Race is so popular right now that it has sparked several spin-offs in other countries. Drag Race UK, Holland, Thailand, Canada, just to name a few. But it has also spawned a whole network of new media to comment on it. There are YouTube series that give a weekly play-by-play. Hello, everyone. It is me, Bob the Drag Queen, and welcome back to the Pit This one is called Pit Stop, hosted by Bob the Drag Queen. Then there's Race Chaser, hosted by Alaska and Willem. Both of them, Drag Race alum. How many times can you say legendary legends in one episode? Sorry, how many times can you say And on top of all the YouTube content, there are podcasts. A huge selection for Drag Race fans, all offering commentary, analysis. There's even a drag con in L.A. that brings people from all around the world to meet the queens. But all this new love for drag, it, it may seem fresh, but it's really not new at all. In fact, we've always loved drag. Female impersonation has been seen all over the world. And here in Wisconsin, there is clear evidence dating farther back than you would even believe. On this episode, we'll untangle more than a century of drag in Wisconsin, and we'll meet local leaders who defined the art right here during drag's golden age. Tempest Heat, BJ Daniels, we'll hear from them later on. Plus, we'll revisit those conversations with Josie Carter and Jamie Gaze from episode one. They'll share how they built their own scene here in Milwaukee in the 50s and 60s. But first, BC and co-host Michael Takash winds back the clock nearly 150 years to the state's first drag performance. Drag has been going on a long, long time. And in our grandparents' time, and our great-grandparents' time, and even in their grandparents' time, Drag was happening in Milwaukee, and it was just as popular as it is today. Were you able to actually pinpoint that first Milwaukee drag show? And 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 if so, do you know what the reaction was and how it was received? So in our research, we were able to determine that the first drag show that ever occurred in Milwaukee happened on June 7th, 1884. 1884? At a time when Milwaukee wow. did not have paved streets sewer systems, indoor plumbing, or even electric lighting yet. In fact, City Hall had not yet been built. The Pabst Theater was still 10 years away. And most of the population lived within one mile of Wisconsin and water. But at that time, um, Francis Leon, who was billed as the famous Leon long before he was ever famous, um, came to town as part of the Leon and Cushman Company and performed at Nunemacher's Grand Opera Hall, which was on Wisconsin and Water, right across the street from City Hall, where the Pabst Theater bar now is. The eponymous Leon graced the stage with his full female impersonation act, song and dance numbers, and tumbling too. The show was a hit. In fact, the Sentinel wrote a rave review the next day. 
So was was like the the gay part of this not really talked about or considered? Like, did anybody really ask that question, or was it more just like it was all about the show and they weren't even? It was oh well, no, Francis Leon was most definitely a gay man. Um, <laughs> Francis Leon opened a theater with his partner slash lover Edwin Kelly, and hosted relief concerts for Civil War widows and their families. They traveled all over the world. I mean, they went to Australia. They lived in New York. They lived in San Francisco. They lived in Chicago. But they faced public harassment and discrimination. So we have to keep in mind, it was okay for him to be in women's costumes on stage. It was not okay for him to be in any kind of female presentation off stage. In fact, the couple was nearly killed by a sharpshooter who fired at them outside of their theater, calling Leon a falsetto freak. Oh, wow. Were they injured or did they, was it just a miss or what happened? The gunfire missed the couple and um, Kelly fought back with um, returned fire and shot and killed the gunman. So he was carrying a gun oh, yeah. to defend himself. Wow. And that was in 1867. So he knew what the stakes were, I'd imagine. You don't just walk around armed, you know, as a female impersonator, yeah, right? I, well, yeah, it's like when you're a famous female impersonator in 1867, you really don't go out in public without protection, I would think. And for good reason. I mean, you could see he was, I mean, there was an attempt on his life. And at the same time that all of this is happening, William Dorsey Swan is being, you know, harassed in Washington, D.C. for hosting house balls and drag parties. And this is really the start in history of this public concern that recurs like a vicious virus through the 20th century that onstage female impersonators are going to use their identities to deceive people in real life. You know, you might fall in love with this female impersonator on stage, but they're going to use their wiles to seduce you, to rob you, to enchant you, to do things that you would not normally do. And they were going to transcend, like, normalcy or transcend reality and become something, like, almost superhuman, and that that would have some devastating effect on society. As we covered in the previous episode, it wasn't until 1982 that LGBTQ people in Wisconsin began to feel any sort of protection from discrimination with that landmark gay rights bill, which means that there were well over a hundred years of history when female impersonation too was illegal. During this time, I mean, people could not buy clothing, accessories, or makeup for the opposite sex. So if you were, you know, an emerging queen of the 1960s, you couldn't go to Gimbal's and buy makeup. Like, you would be, like, forbidden from buying it. So they would just straight up not sell it to you, huh? Oh, absolutely. But Queens found a way. Michael heard straight from Josie Carter and Jamie Gaze, who we met in episode one, about the lengths Queens had to go to get their drag in the 50s and 60s. One of the best stories I heard, again, from Josie Carter was that, you know, (laughs) I loved her language because it it was so colorful. She said, you couldn't just walk into a department store and just start shopping for women's clothing because within a minute, some uptight white woman with her clipboard would be there asking you why you were in there. (laughs) And and she also said that um, people would always challenge her to like, you know, bend the laws and to like go in and like make a scene and do all this crazy stuff, but she wouldn't do it. But apparently Jamie Gaze would. Um, Jamie Gaze would go in and try gowns on 
And when the saleswoman would discover that Jamie Gaze was not, in fact, female, Jamie would, like, you know, find it very funny and, like, run out of theirs. Would Jamie go in like wearing a wig or something? Or how? Oh yeah, they oh, would okay. they would go shopping and drag like they would I they, they would present because I mean that was really a big change. So like the the generation of Josie Carter, Jamie Gaze, the nineteen sixties generation, like those people could present in drag like during the day, like they could go shopping and drag, they could go socialize and drag. It was the beginning of like a separate and unique trans identity before the word transgender even existed or applied. Um, they saw themselves just as like. I guess maybe gender non-conforming or gender fluid, um, but they called themselves queens, and they said that was that was it. That was good enough. Here's Josie Carter, who died in 2014, just three years after this audio was recorded. I just started going in drag when I was about 18, but actually earlier than that, outside the bars, you know, at home and up down the street with my friends, and we went out and just you know just love fooling people. You know, that's what it was, you know, being a girl. It was very, very difficult for people to live that life because they couldn't, they didn't have access to female things if they were trying to express as female or male things if they were trying to express as male. But what most of the queens of this era would do is make their own clothing. Mm, yeah. Because it was the only way to get it. Right. They could go and buy patterns, but they couldn't go and buy women's clothing. Right. Um, another Bon Mott from our friend Josie, she said, I was not about to go out wearing what dead women's clothes, so I decided to start. <laughs> so I decided to start making my own. It doesn't cost a lot to look like a million bucks. Well, my love at the time was not. You know how Wayne was about me being shows. He's yeah. just not, He made my gowns. Yeah, he did. I love yeah. it. Oh gosh, he made my gowns. Yeah. And when I do anything I wear, he made it. Hmm. One way or the other, I didn't get nothing off the rack. Very little, but I get off the rack. But he would make it shows, same room that did shows. We always did our thing like that. I dress for parties and all kinds of stuff. Oh, I dress now. I, I oh, God, yeah, you dress beautifully. As difficult as department stores made it for men to buy women's clothes in the 1960s, it didn't slow down the drag scene. Josie and Jamie performed everywhere around Milwaukee. Oh, God. I went to the uh, Fox Bar. The Phoenix, uh, Castaways, the Bourbon Beat, yes, the Pink Pony. The Pink the, Pony was long time. That was way the, back in the fifties, sixties. Yeah, that was the Pink Pony time of the White Horses. Way, yeah, you know, and the Wagon, something. Wagon Wheel. Yeah, Wagon Wheel. Then there was a bar that's um, a lesbian bar that was crazy. It was called the Wildwood. Oh God! You're going back here. You go in there. You go in there. They had girls in there would kick ass. Yes. <laughs> Trump drives would come in and they throw the fucks out. <laughs> Josie and Jamie lit up the stages around Milwaukee for years to come. Jamie was even there on the opening night at the Eminem Club in 1976, which we talked about in episode two. The gay newspaper at the time said she played hostess and entertained the crowd. Jamie today is still with us, but no longer performs. I moved aside so somebody else could take over. That's nice. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be stripping and doing drag shows for the rest of my life. You have to move aside and let somebody else, give somebody else a chance. Since Jamie and Josie's days, drag has only continued to gain popularity. In fact, as the state created those protections for LGBTQ people in the early 1980s, it opened up even more opportunities for the scene to grow. 
direct performer BJ Daniels emerged on the scene around that time and hasn't stopped since. In fact, this year she was the headliner at Milwaukee's Pride Fest. Miss B.J. Daniels. A stage she has performed on many times in the past and was also featured in the Museum of Wisconsin Art's Legends of Drag exhibit. She's also won countless titles and performed all around the state. I feel like why people like it is because it's over the top, but it's also, um, it's also like close-up magic. When you're in the audience of a drag show, how often do you get close to a movie star? Do you know what I mean? How often do you get close to this level of, of um, performance? What about, the, what about the character itself? How did you develop and, and, and who is BJ oh, Daniels? Well, the character is really, is like always has been my fantasy. I mean, I always, as a young child, was always very attracted to the female performers on variety shows and I loved all the feathers and the sequins and the things like that and then um, in my teens I started staying up late and watching the Late Late Show on Channel 6 and seeing you know Marlena Dietrich and all these things that really you know there were no videos and stuff then and so I would just I probably watched movies every single night till like you know one in the morning and uh, so BJ is really that, you know, that glamour persona that I always have had in my mind's eye of beauty, glamour, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe movie star. So that's what I've always tried to portray um, is that uh, larger than life woman. How did you feel when you were wearing your Loved it. <laughs> Oh, my God. I, I was like, this is what I, I want to be a star. And I, as cornball as that sounds, it's the truth. I, I just said, I'm going to be one. Hell or high water. I will. I'm. This is what I'm doing. When would you say the golden age of drag was? And how did it start? And why did it end? Okay. I, well, I don't even think it has ended, but I do feel like this. Along with the acceptance and pursuance of LGBT rights along came with more queer culture because really the era that I came out in was kind of like this hyper-masculine culture um, and so being able to be embraced in these shows here in Milwaukee and where drag was actually more revered than it was in Madison was really something and I think the golden age came from the fact that all of a sudden these clubs wanted to do drag shows on a regular basis. They wanted to become the next Baton Show Lounge because the Baton Show Lounge had become famous in Chicago for their shows. And that was that was the beginning of it. I think clubs all over the country at that point started saying like, wow, there's something to this. So I think the golden age really came around because of the AIDS crisis. The arrival of AIDS changed everything. It was devastating in a way that the community and the world had just never seen. There was this sudden shared antagonist, an enemy for all LGBTQ people. What were your experiences there during the AIDS crisis? Well, of course, that, that, was, that was the really everything. And I would say that the, the awareness level of this crisis really, really hit home probably around 84 
um, 85. I had a roommate named Abby Rhodes who was the punk rock queen and she was from Detroit, Michigan. And she just was very unique at the time. We were all very concerned with being different than the old school drag. We were, we wanted to not have the bouffant hair and, you know, we were trying to go kind of more punk rockish and, and more MTV. And, uh, Abby definitely was that, but, um, all of a sudden Abby, you know, I was like, Hey, where's Abby tonight? Oh, she, you know, has the flu. And the next week Abby was dead. I mean, it was, Mm. it was those kinds of things that were just so shocking that, um, I feel like a lot of people just said, this can't be tolerated. People should not just, this shouldn't be happening. So yeah, we, um, were asked to start doing benefits for, uh, the Milwaukee AIDS project. And, uh, when these organizations really, really started, um, helping address this issue in the community, they reached out to us, the most visible people where you had crowds of people coming every week. You know, you could reach out to those crowds through people like me. And I I think it really, um, it really created this sense of family and community and, uh, want to support others. I'm sure those performances and, and those benefits were so meaningful to the whole community. You know, when you look back on those times, uh, when you see those photos, those Polaroids, um, I know you still perform today, but I mean, how do you feel knowing that, you know, that you actually were part of this scene that helped so many people? We always felt that that was part of our job. Mm. I mean, I think that was something, and especially when uh, two of my very best friends, I mean, I toured with them, the way I look at performance was Ginger Spice and Holly Brown. And both died of AIDS in 1991. Mm. So that's, you know, 32 years ago or 31 years ago now. And um, a gut punch. Um, Mm. Because it was just, you know, it was a a moment in time so long ago, but so close, you know. And I also received uh, a gift of a cassette tape, um, which I had digitized, uh, of Ginger Spice's last interview. DJ shared that audio with us. Maybe what I'm doing, people think I'm a freak, but then there are other people who think, wow, I wish I could do that. That hurt after mm. 31 years to hear someone's voice again yeah. and picture them speaking and picture them, um, you know, their hand movements. and We do three songs a night and I always try to do one glamour number, one bitchy number and one perhaps dance number or dramatic number, you know, just to give a variety because we have so much variety at our disposal. Mm-hmm. Also a bit painful sometimes yeah. too. After the break, more of that final interview with Ginger Spice. Plus, we talk with performer Tempest Heat about the lost stages of River West, a place where Milwaukee's queer black community created its own spaces. That's next on Be Seen. Support for 88.9 Radio Milwaukee comes from your membership and Alverno College, which offers a range of professional development opportunities for women and men, from certificates to graduate degrees. More information at alverno.edu slash adult learning. We're back on Be Seen with that final interview from Ginger Spice. I will say this, Ginger was like a tough taskmaster. I will tell them if they're wearing something that I don't feel is up to our show standards, they won't go on. Mm-hmm. 
they won't work. Ginger really was about standards and ethics of drag and how it is and what you needed to do as a performer. I'm very strict on that. And really, this interview is kind of all about that, that she did with this uh, author at, at the time. I do know that she was um, not well at the time, because uh, I kind of remember her saying, doing that. And um, I ended up replacing Ginger, like one was on a, a television show that became quite iconic here in Milwaukee in 1989, called Milwaukee's Talking. It's Milwaukee's Talking on location from Summerfest. And it became iconic to the gay community here. And I think, honestly, that pushed drag even further mm -hmm. because all of a sudden we were on this like local TV show, you know, morning show. And it was huge. It was an enormous thing here in Milwaukee at that time. And um, so, so, yeah, the gut punch comes from like that should that may not have been me doing that, you know. Um, mm. It probably should have been somebody else. But um, I was glad that I could um, help her out in those ways. At this stage in her career and illness, she was in and out of the hospital, but still running shows at Club 219, which was a popular nightclub with a hot drag scene. And she was in charge. Uh, you have to have a concept and how you want to, you know, you can't be selfish and look at the show as, well, this is how I want to look. Mm -hmm. You have to look at show as a whole from start to finish babysit everyone make sure everybody's doing their job and doing the best they can uh, you also got to worry about yourself you got yourself to worry about too she would do it should have been me um, which you know is the song about being left at the altar and she would come out in a wedding dress with a bouquet and she had baby's breath in her hair and she would literally like jump off the stage and like walk across the bar in this wedding dress and it would bring the house down every night. When I shout it, it should have been me. Another ongoing part of Ginger's show, a troop of manly men alongside the queens remind you of anything? Oh, pit crew. Oh, come on. Uh, I've been auditioning this one gentleman. Uh, he's perhaps he's not the dancer that I would like him to be, but physically he's a very, he's about 6'2 and about 210 and very well built. And uh, the average is for to use someone like that to make our girls look better. Mm -hmm. Clever girl. I think I've accomplished things maybe um, not a customary of what most people believe should be, but I think I've done okay for myself. The point is we are letting people know they existed, letting people know that they mattered, letting people know that people cared about them, not only as performers, but as individuals of the LGBT community, and that all these people are the fabric that the young folks today are made of. They may not know that, but they are. And, and it's important for them to hear those names. We can never fully wrap our heads around the human cost of the AIDS crisis and the generation that was lost to it. But even in all this sadness, I, I can't help but feel a deep sense 
of ancestral pride, proud of the generation that came together at the hardest time in our community's history to dance and to support our chosen families. Another way the community came together over drag in Milwaukee was in the River West neighborhood. You wouldn't know it today, but River West was the go-to neighborhood for Milwaukee's black queer community at a certain time. Longtime Milwaukee drag performer Tempest Heat was there. My name is Jonathan. Um, I'm born and raised here in Milwaukee, and I have performed for the last, I would say, 14, 15 years as Tempest Heat. He is, I don't know if you're aware, but I, I, I'm on dialysis. I have kidney disease. So I was like excited when you asked me, like, yeah, I could come to the studio. And then I was like, oh, wait, I got dialysis at that time. So oh, no, I did not I'm know that. Like, but I sitting on my dialysis chair while y'all interview me. Oh, dear. <laughs> Just the fact that she made time for us during her dialysis treatment, it shows you what kind of person Jonathan is. If anything, I feel like if I'm proud of the fact that despite me having like medical challenges right now i'm still out here i'm still working i'm a positive person so i'm not worried about it. i'm gonna get a kidney and everything will be fine <laughs> all right all right i love that <laughs> well thank you again for taking the time today um i want to talk about you and kind of your experience growing up in milwaukee uh what was it like growing up in, in the city here as a as a black gay man yeah, so, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I'm originally from what's technically like the poorest zip code in Milwaukee, 53206. I grew up on 18th and Center, um, which is smack dab in the hood, <laughs> which, you know, it's hard enough being a black person and a gay person and then adding drag on top of it's just like makes it even harder. I remember like literally walking to the bus stop when I first started doing like when I was 16 was like the first time I did like a drag show and I literally walked from 18th to center to the bus stop on 12th and Tatonia in drag and got called a couple fags but I just <laughs> kept it moving and went and like caught the like public bus like downtown to go do a drag show so um, it's it's it, it's had its struggles, but I feel like I'm a very strong person, so it's never stopped me from wanting to perform or wanting to do what I feel like I was destined to do, which is be a drag queen. Back then, we had a lot more like black gay clubs, um, Emeralds, which was located in River West, like off of Center Street in Fradney, um, which was just like a small little hole in the wall, but it was a very popular black gay bar. There was also one called Barbie Dows, which was more of like a lesbian black gay bar, which was down the street um, in River West on like Hadley. And then there was a club called uh, Conversations, which was on like 35th and Billard, and a friend of mine owned it. And um, so I used to perform there. And then eventually she bought a bigger space down the street on like 35th and Capitol called Club Perk. And then I performed there as well. And I love I performed... these names of these places. I, I, <laughs> they were so much better back then, right? Yeah, Emeralds, Barbie Dolls, Club Perk, Conversations. But yeah, they, but they were all like predominantly like black gay bars. So... What did it mean to the community to see those places disappear? I mean, because we're talking about like a, a culture within a culture. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, like as I said, when I first started coming out, that's all I knew. I didn't really know of like Lacage, and back then there were a bunch of like you know gay bars in the district, like Boom and Triangle and all that stuff, which have you know unfortunately gone as well. 
But, um, I mean, I don't know. For so long, that's all we knew. And then eventually, you know, um, just a lot of the gays who frequented those all-black places or owned them just got older, sold the space, um, were just closed down. So, I mean, it was sad to watch it diminish, but it kind of forced me and a lot of, like, my other, like, performing friends to start performing at, like, Lacage and Triangle and kind of, it kind of forced us to integrate, I guess, the gay bars in Milwaukee because we have nowhere else to go, so. Just can you speak to the importance of, of having this place that was specifically welcoming for black people in the community? Um, were, were other more white spaces not? Yeah, definitely. And I think, that, you know, and that's even unfortunately to this day, a lot of people still don't feel welcomed in certain gay spaces if they're black. Um, I think that's why the black gay bars has such a value because you you could just go there and... I don't know. It's weird, like, being isolated in your own community. And I feel like sometimes when you would go to, like, the more predominantly white gay bars, that's how you felt still. So it was nice to have a place where, you know, we knew they were going to play, like, Chicago house gay music, which a lot of black people back then used to listen to. It just... I don't know. It's like representation anywhere. You know, you just feel a lot more comfortable when you are in an environment that's similar to, you know, your same liking. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate that we don't have any anymore, but I, I, I mean, I appreciate the fact that like the community now tries to incorporate, like I know this is, it has like, you know, Vogue nights, which is predominantly black, um, and then we have like the further culture shows. So that type of stuff helps. But, you know, um, at the time, at least when I was coming up, I really felt like I needed um, like the black gay community. They are the ones that raised me. You know, I have like people to this day that I still consider like older family role model members, you know, that are just a part of like our gay community. Back at Second and National, Milwaukee's present-day gayborhood, BJ takes us back to Club 219, a long-lost stage that was home to some of Wisconsin's most iconic drag performances. So looking back at Club 219, is there one night in particular that you would go back and relive if you could? Well, there were there were quite a few. The thing that I would want to relive um, would be some of the fabulous productions that they did. Uh, because... They weren't documented on video, and very few people took photographs. But one that I do remember from 1983, um, we had the designer Robert Yavari. Now, he was famous as an artist. He was from Milwaukee, moved to San Francisco in the early 70s. And he was also um, one of the artists and architects of sort of those ma- the male drawings for, like, the bars, the eagle, you know, things like mm-hmm. that. Those were his his drawings but he was a fine arts artist but anyway when he found out he had AIDS which was in the early 80s he came back to Milwaukee and Tony Canfora and Del Slowick the owners of Club 219 took care of him and basically gave him a job um, designing our shows so he loved the fact that I did like punk rock kind of things and like modern things so he designed a number for me uh, based on Here Comes the Rain Again, which was 
brand new at the time. And don't forget that um, videos were brand new on MTV, and it was just what it was. So what they did at the 219, it was a two-tiered stage. He built a dock on the lower part of the stage that looked like a dock. Like a ship dock? or a- Like the end of a pier. Okay. Like the end of a pier. And so if you've ever seen the video with Annie Lennox, she comes out with a lantern. So I came out with a lantern from behind the curtain and down onto the thing, and the fog came out. And then when it when it goes into dun 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 dun, the curtain lifted on the upper stage, and he had created a terrarium like out of plexiglass. I went behind it, and it started raining on me as I would like put my hand on the thing, and I was just getting totally soaking wet. People were flipping out because they'd just never seen anything quite like that. It was like, you know, literally making a, a live video of the song. And I remember that people were just like totally flipped out. Obviously, it was the last number of the show because <laughs> you couldn't do that again. But it was the only time we ever did that. And it was, I just remember how um, people were like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen, you know? I would. I wish I could go back in time and watch that. That must have been so fierce. I'm picturing you behind, behind the plexiglass and right. the hand. Wow. Yep. And then the makeup running down. <laughs> and, you know the whole thing. Close your eyes, picture it, and wish you were there. I know I am. And if you can't quite picture it, B.J. Daniels and Michael Takasha's new book will help. It's called History of Milwaukee Drag, Seven Generations of Glamour. It's filled with hundreds of photos and a detailed account of more than 140 years of drag in Wisconsin. You know, I had done a little bit of homework here and there and kind of pieced together some really amazing stuff like, you know, drag shows in the 1930s in downtown Milwaukee, um, drag shows in the 1940s on 20th and Rawson. I mean, just crazy things that like were happening in Milwaukee and when I really stood back and looked at this like long spectrum, I saw that we had this really long story to tell. It it really went far and beyond, um, you know, BJ's start in drag in 1980. But what we both decided on was he would uh, follow the role of female impersonation in entertainment here in Milwaukee from the earliest vestiges that he could find. Um, online and through his historical research and then sort of tie that into how these drag appearances and people touring through Milwaukee then sort of started filtering into um, local drag venues and things like that. So we go all the way from 1884 through today. The book is a wealth of local queer history and is due out June 27th. You can find it at all major booksellers and on Amazon.com. Thank you to our guests, Tempest Heat and BJ Daniels. And thank you for listening to episode three of Be Seen. And we're not even halfway done. On our next two episodes, we're hitting the town. We're talking about the oldest, longest running gay bar in Wisconsin and learning about the one of a kind woman who opened it. That's on the way in episode five. But first, in our next episode, we're meeting the owner of the state's only women's bar, Walker's Pint. She shares how she's keeping her business thriving while so many other women's bars have closed around the country. And we'll also meet a whole slew of intergenerational patrons, 
women who defined our queer scene in Wisconsin. That's next time on Be Seen. I'm Nate Immig. Talk to you then. And happy Pride. Be Seen is hosted by me, Nate Immig, and Michael Takash. Our producer and audio engineer is Kenny Perez, with additional support from Salam Fatayer. Marketing on 88.9 is led by Sarah Lahr. Our logo and branding by Aaron Bagata. Social media by Dan Reiner. And community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director. And Danae Davis is 88.9's interim executive director. Thanks most of all to our members for making this and all content on Radio Milwaukee possible. This is Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. <laughs>